Welcome to episode 27 of Renewing the Conversation, a series of interviews where we talk to leading industry professionals and experts about renewable energy and heating, with a focus on the home and what challenges face the industry and homeowners. Today, welcome Paul Jewell, the National Grid's System Development Manager. We asked Paul whether the energy network will really be able to handle the huge increase in electric vehicles and heat pumps. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button below and please show us your support by giving us a thumbs up. Enjoy the interview. Good morning, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm um, very excited to talk to you about the National Grid and what's happening on the grid and what the future is for the grid. I think a really important point to start with is that you were previously Western Power Distribution and you've now recently rebranded or been taken over. Some restructuring has happened where you're now National Grid. Can you just tell us about the name change and what that means and now what your role is within the grid as a whole in the UK? The national grid bit is an interesting change because you're right, we were Western Power Distribution for a very long time. People will know us. We covered around about a third of the UK. So the, the license areas we operated in were the Southwest, South Wales and East and West Midlands areas. Our job was basically delivering power to people's front doors, you know, running the networks in towns and cities. We were owned by PPL, which is an American company. They sold us to National Grid Group, which means that now National Grid in the UK runs a transmission business across the whole of the UK. It runs a system balancing business across the whole of the UK and distribution for a third of the UK. So we are branded as National Grid. You will now see National Grid VAMs in the local areas where you used to see WPD VAMs. The focus that I've got, well, I can talk about the whole of National Grid. The focus that I've really got is um, how we deal with, with net zero, how we deal with the future and decarbonisation on a distribution network. So it's a very much down to the, the knotty problems of getting enough capacity into people's streets so that they can decarbonise. So there's obviously been a huge shift in power in the UK. We're now starting to see a real momentum going towards electrification and with cars now needing the, the battery storage and all those your recharging points and everything else. We're looking at homes going on to heat pumps that obviously run through um, electricity. How uh, are you guys, what are you doing to set the grid up so that it can handle the additional load requirements and load demand it's going to have the electricity side? We're working on that. We've been working on it for a while. And I, I think if, if you take the high level picture, the government's committee on climate change predict that by 2050, we'll have four times the amount of generation, four times the amount of electricity usage and two times the size of network. So, so there's an interesting factor in there that not everything that we do will be building big network. Some of it will be operating the network more flexibly. We'll definitely see that across the national network. We'll definitely see that across um, the local networks that rerun, but at higher voltages that interconnect towns and cities. But when you get into your local town and when you get into the cables that run down the street in front of homes and in front of people's businesses, a lot of them need to be uprated. It, it's as simple as that. But the money that we're going to be spending on the grid between now and 2050 will be significant and we will be uprating small size assets. So our focus really is on getting ahead with that work now. If you look on our network, most of our assets have a 50-year life. The assets that we're building today will 
still be in operation well after net zero in 2050. My view is if, if we don't put the right assets in the ground now, we've missed an opportunity and we end up costing our customers money because we have to go back and, and re, redo things. So, so there's a lot in our network plans, which is all about putting in large cables whenever you um, lay trench work. And you know, in simple terms, by, by the time you've you've dug a trench in the street, you'd probably pay £100 a metre for the trench. The cable that goes in it might be 8, 10, 12, 15 pounds a metre. But on the scale of things, why wouldn't you put the big cable in? And, and that's where we're going in, in the plan, which starts next April. The only size of mains cable we use is the one that we call big. Um, yeah, and, and that is the future. We, we're laying now as brand new three-phase supplies to customers' homes. Not because we think they're going to use three-phase yet, but because we don't want to get into the world of, if, if you like, you know, broadband where you, you couldn't get a really good internet capacity on your twisted pair cable, but fiber gives you more. I don't want our customers coming back to us in 10, 20 years time and saying, what were you thinking of in the early 2020s? Didn't you think that we were gonna use more energy and we might want a bigger cable? The engineering focus is very much around build it big and build it ready because we, we want to keep ahead of demand. So you, you've just briefly mentioned uh, three-phase electricity there. Could you just quickly explain for our audience what the difference is between single and three-phase? Electricity runs down um, most streets in most towns in threes. We run the electricity in a, in a three-phase system. There are three sets of electricity that run in one cable. Historically in the UK, we would pick one of those of the three out of that cable, joint a cable onto it, which we took to a customer's front door. Now, that means if they want more capacity than one cable can offer, and, and to be blunt, in the past, nobody ever has, we'd have to dig up, overlay, replace the service that goes from the pavement to the front door. What we're doing as an element of future-proofing is taking that three-phase to our customers' front doors, putting it there for the future and giving them the option of, do you want to take all three phases now and wire your home as a three-phase installation? And we know that's an additional cost, but there are some benefits. Or do you want to just take one of the three phases? We'll tell you which one. Take one of the three phases and wire your property as if it's a, a conventional home. Different developers, different house builders have different views on, on how much they want to do for their customers. I think it depends whether you're building to price or whether you're building to a sort of a, a design and a feature. If you were building and you were looking for features, us giving you a three-phase connection and you making use of it means that you can put three times the amount of solar panels on the roof. You can have a three-phase heat pump instead of a single-phase one. You can have a car charger that will charge your car three times as fast. It builds that future in for the people that will want it now, but it also builds that capability in for when people maybe change their gas boiler in 15 or 20 years' time, or if they're a, a late adopter to an EV. So your role is kind of really more focused on future-proofing us and making sure that we've got the infrastructure in place for the future. And we talked about how you know, you're kind of really having to think about how much electricity we're going to need and demand with regards to you know, how much everything is now changing. Are you also having to take into account climate change and more extreme weather events? Um, obviously, we saw that in the last winter, we had a lot of back-to-back -back storms. Storm Arwen came through and knocked out power. And, you know, for example, we had, we had no power for yeah. three days, but Yorkshire, I think, was out for like 11, 11 days. Now. 
So are you also having to think about, you know, the infrastructure you're putting in and how you're putting up, you know, where, for example, you know, are you putting up less poles and running less lines? Are you wanting it down into the ground more? You know, how is that affecting your decision making going forward and plans? We're definitely doing that. I think that there's, I was going to say there's two strands of what we do. There's probably three strands. The first strand is allowing customers to connect things to get to the net zero and, um, and help fight climate change. The other is what we're doing as a business with our business carbon footprint. And the third is how do we build a network that's resilient to changes in the future? Since the Climate Change Act, which was 2008, something like that, it's a while ago now. Since then, the industry and and us as as Western Power, and we'll do it now as National Grid, we've been um, respondents to the requirements in that act to plan ahead for climate change. So so we do write a, a... a climate adaptation action plan. You are right, stormy weather is the thing that will catch us out the most and overhead lines are the thing that are most vulnerable. The three areas that we focused on, which we think are are the biggest for us, is increasing temperature and our overhead lines are designed to operate at a running temperature with an ambient temperature behind it. So one of the things we've done probably since about 2010 is We now build overhead lines to run at a higher overall temperature to account for the fact that in the summer it might get warmer. Lightning is a big risk that we're seeing more of, that that more sort of intense and quick stormy event. So a lot of the plant on our overhead lines now has more lightning protection than it used to. The new designs have have got more protection built into them. The third thing is, as you say, that those stormy events. And I think the the interesting thing is is the stormy events that we see, and it happened with the the winter and Valentine storms back in 2014, 2015. We were getting probably from Christmas Eve through that whole um, holiday period, we were getting a really windy day, wet day, stormy day, lots of problems. You then get a calm day. You try and fix the network during that calm day. And the day after, it all happened over again. What was clear was if, if, you, could, if you could keep ahead of that, you would repair the network. People would get back on supply. But certainly what the UK saw in the southeast was the operator there was beginning to fall behind the volume of problems they were seeing and then the the, the later stormy weather was compounding that so so it's it's very much a case of what do you do to keep ahead of it and actually there's another one which I, i should have thought of as well is um flood risk there's a lot of work that we've done to defend our assets against flooding um, and that's coming in and, and how do we provide proper tactical responses to an area that, that might be um, seeing flooding that's all really good engineering stuff I love it but it's, it's, a, it's a long way from customers and net zero because I think all of our customers are just going to expect that they, they flick the switch and the lights come on if they get an electric vehicle they expect to be able to plug it in and all that sort of because you know, we need to be there in the background just getting on with it. Yeah, it was interesting. I did see um, uh, somebody uh, had shared their story on social media recently about how they had recently changed their vehicle to an electric uh, vehicle in central London to avoid the congestion charges and things like that. And she was absolutely delighted with the first six months she ran it she absolutely loved it she was completely honeymoon period with this car and then she left London for the weekend and went on a country weekend and she said she had an absolute nightmare uh, coming back from her destination because she just couldn't find a charging point for the car and when she did eventually find one it was almost close to midnight off a motorway middle of nowhere type situation and there was already three or four cars in front of her that were also there queuing so she had you know almost like a five hour wait to just get to 
the point where her car was recharged again. So, you know, how are you kind of, how fast are you looking at expanding those kind of facilities for people? The actual charge pads and the charge installations wouldn't be us. Um, it's our job to get the electrical capacity into the ground where they are. I'm an EV driver too. And um, sometimes I moan and go, why can't I have a canopy like the petrol drivers? Because whenever you're charging an EV, the, the charge points are there, but normally they haven't got a roof over them. So you get wet. And it, it, uh, it's, small, it's small things. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that that's beginning to change. We're, we're beginning to see um, EV charge installers putting charge points with canopies and maybe solar panels on the on the canopies so that you're, you're using renewable energy. The difficulty at the moment, I think, is us EV drivers are all still early adopters. So you, you still get those early adoption pains of, um, of, of, of a product that isn't fully developed. But what we're doing from a network point of view, there's three useful things, really. The first thing is if you're a domestic customer, in the national grid distribution area, so the southwest South Wales to Midlands areas. If you want a domestic EV charger at your home, we always say yes. It's a, it's a big step forward that we've made, but the answer is always yes. It's either yes, go off and do it, or it's yes, go off and do it, and we need to come and do some work to tidy up your service or tidy up the, the termination in your property. For us, that, that was a, a, a key step forward with, with the volumes that we expect to see. But when you get out on the public road and probably 40% of our um, driving customers won't have driveways or garages, so we won't be able to charge at home. And your example of, of somebody from London is probably one of those. You're going to rely on the public network. But what we want to do is make sure that the Getting the electricity capacity to the places that people want to charge is easy, that we've got, if you like, cookie cutter solutions. Now, if you're putting some EV charges in a car park, um, one of the things that we've done is we've redesigned the sort of standard substation that we'd use on a housing estate. So if you imagine that when you're on a housing estate, at the end of one of the roads, there's a small substation, probably four meters by four meters. One of those we've now redesigned to make it capable of providing quick and easy um, capacity for EV chargers. We can say to local authorities or to people looking at car park spaces, if you give us the equivalent of a couple of parking spaces, we will fit a substation that will give you a thousand kilowatts of charge capacity. Whether you fit 150 kilowatt charges, 50 kilowatt charges or 20s, I'm not worried, but there's a thousand kilowatts available. One of the areas where we're going to see a lot of demand increases is the area of um, motorway services. And there's a project that we've done at Exeter Services at the very bottom of the M5. We did it at Exeter for a couple of reasons. The first was that um, Moto Motorway Services joined with us on the innovation project, and it's one of their sites. When we shortlisted the sites, it, it became a really useful site because it starts answering the question which drivers have, which is, my EV is great for the commute and great for everything I do in my normal week. But what about when I want to go on holiday? M5 Extra being the gateway to the Southwest, it felt like the right place to do it. So here's what we did. And it, I, I talk about it now, like as if it's something we've done forever, but it, it felt absolutely bonkers a few years ago when we were first um, creating the idea, is that we wanted to future-proof a motorway services for when everybody has gone electric. So all cars, all vans, maybe even HGVs, but you know, they're, they're a, a stage further on. We came out with a load figure for a motorway services, which is essentially the same as the demand of a small town because you're looking at 
70 or 80 charge heads at a motorway service they're all 100 150 kilowatts each you're into megawatts and megawatts so the the capacity that we wanted at exeter was 12 megawatts so 12,000 kilowatts of capacity traditionally in our world that gets delivered um with the sort of big substation that you might see at the edge of a town um imagine one that's maybe 40 meters by 40 meters square it's got a security fence around it. It's got a switch room. It's got floodlights. It's got all sorts of what I think is lovely stuff. But I'm an electrical engineer. You might think <laughs> it's a really horrid looking gray plant. Um, but what we knew is that there's no way that that is the answer for a motorway service. You know, if, if you wanted to put one of those at a motorway service, the answer is going to be quite short, partly because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't fit. It's not in the right place. And secondly, it wouldn't fit spatially because motorway services are a big car park so the the solution that's down at exeter is basically that solution but squashed into a couple of shipping containers so one is the transformer one is all of the switch gear and it makes it more more of a solution that feels like a a sort of upgraded version of what we do for a housing estate so you, you can drop it on site in two shipping containers. You can connect it up reasonably quick, but it offers that facility for the site to have connectivity and lots of future-proofed connectivity. The project finished um, just in the summer. So we're now writing up the specifications and, and providing all that data because it's, it, it's a public project. It's been funded by our electricity customers and the off-gem allowances. So all the learning becomes public and it's on our website. But when we've created the spec for that, I'm rather hoping it will be the spec for the future of motorway services. It's one of those statistics that when you dig into it, you think a motorway service is going to need the capacity of a small town, but it's true and it's the future. The huge step changes that our industry has to make to support net zero. So you've mentioned all the asset rollouts and the upgrades, which are obviously critical and vital to making sure that everybody gets that power. Now heat pumps in particular at this point in time are still quite you know they're not mainstream there's going to be a lot more upgrades happening over the course of the next decade or so what's happening behind the scenes to make sure that in the winter when everybody cranks up their heat pump and it starts consuming a lot of electricity to make sure that everybody's got that power and that that power is green i'll start with the the last bit first the bit about making sure that power is green is a commitment that national grid um, have got as a group which is to make the electricity network green by 2035 so there's a target that's been set on the eso bit of the business which balances the generators that that come onto the network to um, make that green and uh, there's a few caveats for system security because we don't want time to put the network at risk that was the case of just going green but but that's their ambition and and that's that's well ahead of 2050 which is where we're looking to be net zero so that's a pretty good target for them the target for us i think it it goes back to what i said earlier about um, building the network big and building the network ready but also we can tie heat pumps into the EV charge journey, I suppose, for domestic customers in that um, the same as if you wanted an EV charger at a domestic size for a domestic home, we'd say yes to it. We're doing the same with heat pumps. Now, it's, it's domestic heat pumps, so, so we top out at 12 kilowatts. And I, I can only say most heat pumps because... Some of the older designs are a bit troublesome on our network and, and provide network interference and harmonic problems. To be honest, not a lot of people are installing those anymore. But mm. as, as they're still there 
on the list of ones which we know exist. I can't say all heat pumps, but most heat pumps and certainly newer designs, domestic customer, 12 kilowatt. If you ask for one of those, the answer is yes, same day. And as I say, we, we might need to come and do some work to your um, service and to your cutout. But the, the key answer has to be go for it. First reason I want to do it is the volumes that are coming. But the other reason I want to do it is to make it easy for a customer. I, I don't want the customer that's considering a heat pump, which is you know, a, a huge upheaval to change your heating system anyway, to then have a, oh, the DNO says I can't, mm. extra element into the decision. If we can be away from that decision-making process and always say yes to those domestic mm. customers, then um, we allow more to, to connect. Yeah, you mentioned the DNO. That's actually really interesting because um, we, when we applied for our DNO for our heat pump, I know that we were told that it could be up to six months and it was yeah, five months and yeah, 20, <laughs> 20 days or something. And we've also just had a whole bunch of um, neighbours and they're installing, different neighbours are installing either solar or they're just installing heat pumps and they're all applying for DNOs. And um, it's so funny, they all came to us and said, how long did your DNO take? And we said, nearly six months. And and they've actually seen exactly, that. and we said to them, but that was, you know, a good few years ago, that was four years ago. Um, so maybe it's faster now. Unfortunately, it hasn't been, they're seeing the same thing. Yeah. It's just under six months that their um, DNO is taking. So that does create a six month kind of waiting time for that homeowner. Is there anything that, that, um, that you're doing with regards to trying to speed up the DNOs to get them approved a little bit faster that, yeah that, that's all the stuff that we are doing because I, I don't want people waiting that long because there's always the chance if you wait that long that you'll think oh, I, I'm not going to do that I'll have another gas boiler um, mm, and whilst true. there isn't a end date for gas boilers in the UK that's been set by government you, you don't get the drive is a bit of a pun isn't it but you don't get the drive like you do on EVs you know there is an end date for buying petrol cars so it's so people mm. talk about the end date. They, they, there's an awareness of, oh, at some time in the future, I need to change. There isn't that if you've got a gas boiler. Um, so, so, so I think that needs to happen. You are right. If it was a few years ago, we'd have um, made you walk through Treacle to get um, anything connected. And we'd have um, done many, many studies. But we've, we've learned a lot about heat pumps in the meantime. And we've become a lot more comfortable with the domestic size ones. Um, and in fairness to the manufacturers, a lot of them have, fitted a lot more filters and a, a, a lot more products into the devices that mean they're easier for us to connect. If you're in the national grid <laughs> distribution areas, the answer is now a, a, a same or next day answer. And our plan is that by the end of this year, it will be a um, internet web-based um, solution for you. So you or, or your installer could notify us of a heat pump or an EV charger and get a response straight away 24-7. We want to know where these are and we don't want installers to install them and not tell us, but we also don't yeah. want to get in, in the way of those installers. Another thing that we're, we're hoping to do in our next price for your period for vulnerable customers is start looking at heating and decarbonisation roadmaps. We're looking in the next price for your period to start working with um, community groups and try and look at um, customers that will need a lot of help to get to net zero. What can you do now that puts you in a better position for when your gas boiler packs in? You know, installation first is, is, the, is the key thing, isn't it? You know, and that works, that works even if you've still got a gas boiler. But it's all about what can you do now? What, what can you do? How can you plan your investment in your home so that by the time you do come round to replacing your heating system, 
it's no longer a distressed purchase where you need heat tomorrow and you go for, I want the same again because it's quick and easy. We've already added insulation. We've already changed some radiator sizes. We may have got rid of microbial piping or whatever it is. Mm. But get to a position where you're, you're already a little bit down the line towards um, a more net zero solution. Yeah, it was interesting that you mentioned about that your target is to get to green um, energy by 2035. I, I think were you saying that that's 100% or close to a, a much a much higher percentage. Um, because when we were, uh, we you actually did a study on our energy mm -hmm. um, last winter mm -hmm. um, and you started to look at the grid and look at where our electricity was coming from for our heat pump. Because there is a bit of greenwashing that goes wrong, uh, on with regards to heat pumps and that people feel that when they get a heat pump that's it they're just automatically green and clean and and um, they forget that actually electricity still got to be generated somehow so not all egg electricity is created green and clean there is a lot of electricity that we found yeah. off our grid that came uh, last winter especially when we had the storms and things and as you said the power lines were down and there was an awful lot of disruption on the grid and a lot of pressure on the grid a lot of demand and we actually started to see that actually a lot of our electricity was being created from coal um in the midlands well in, in, the, in the east midlands it was we primarily were in kind of mid wales so a lot of our electricity was being generated by gas mm. um and especially on days that were really cold still um you know so there's no solar there was no wind uh, a lot of our actual energy was being created using gas yeah so i was going to ask you so on the days where you see that there there is no solar um it's really really cloudy we've come out of storms it's you know really dark and dingy and we've just got no wind at all um where are you planning on getting that green energy from is that where things like hydrogen start to come into play or uh, nuclear or, or long energy storage kind of strategies maybe that battery related that's a, a, a question for um the system operator bit of grid i can give you an answer but it's it's not a detailed answer um, and one of the things that, that that part of the grid group does is they forecast all of the demands that are changing so they forecast all of the evs all of the heat pumps all of the process change that is needed to get to net zero they also forecast the increase in energy they add in what they're expecting to see for wind and solar and nuclear and other low or zero carbon um, generation sources and they model that out through there's already looking at i think 40 gigawatts of offshore wind as, as being as, as the next requirement for the uk until you get enough renewable energy then you have to rely on the traditional sources i, th I think that the, the comforter that I, i'd add to you is that the grid is generally getting greener if you're filling up your ev or if you're using your heat pump the energy is getting greener as time goes on we acquired the, the midlands areas um, to become part of our dno in 2011 the office that I used to go to most is at Castle Donington near East Midlands Airport and you can see Ratcliffe Power Station just across the motorway and back in 2011 Ratcliffe operated most days um, and it, it, it was there it, it was it was big on the horizon in fact when when I didn't know my way around the East Midlands you knew on the M1 if you were getting close to where you needed to be because you could see the stacks and you could see the the, the water vapor in the more recent years as I've been going up there you, you find days when it's switched off and it's like that's interesting that, that's, that's that's a change in our energy mix over a 10-year period last summer National Grid were, were showing the times when we'd gone coal free 
you know, and it, it was days and then it was weeks. I don't know if we made it to a month, but certainly it, it was a lot of time when we were cold free. The grid will get greener. And I think in, in answer to you know, what, what's that green grid going to include, it will include everything you mentioned from you know, wind and solar to hydrogen and battery storage and more flexibility. The, the flexibility thing plays back into the, the Committee on Climate Change. Four times the generation four times the use and twice the grid means that the grid will be more flexible if it's going to pass four times the volume of energy with only being twice as big as a conventional grid. Every time you use electricity, the electricity will get cleaner, I think is, is the message that I'd give you. And I'll leave the rest of it to the ESO bit of the company. With regards to your professional opinion, when you're actually inside the industry looking out, how do you feel we're doing in the UK compared to other countries? I know it, it kind of seems to keep coming up in, in, in news reports as, you know, where, where do we stand compared to the rest of EU countries? Do you think that we're where we need to be or do you think that we are where you expected us to be at this point or do you think that we still need to keep pushing forward a little bit faster and also what can we what are you learning from other countries are there any other countries out there that are really doing some excellent things that you're thinking okay wow that's really food for thought or we're watching that project really carefully to see what we can learn from that what would you do more of there's always things you could do more of. I think I'll start by saying that I think we're quite well ahead in the world. And I'll explain why in a minute. But the, the, the sort of what would we do more of? We've already got a drop dead date for the sale of petrol and diesel cars. So I'd love to see a drop dead date for the sale of gas boilers and carbon heating sources. That fits in with what the government set out in the carbon plan in 2011 of decarbonizing heating and transport by turning it to electricity sources. What I'd love to see is, is that push on heating. As for what government has done already, before we were owned by National Grid, we were owned by PPL, which is um, a, a network operator based in Pennsylvania in the USA. When I was talking to them, they would always say, I wish we'd got direction like you've got. So, so when we talk about laying bigger cables, planning for the future, planning for 2050, they'd say, on what basis? If you say things like legally binding net zero target by 2050 set into law and requirements to halt petrol and diesel sales by 2030 slash 2035, the American DNOs would go, I wish we'd got that clarity. We are in, in that sort of in that climate change world of achieving net zero. We are leading the way by setting our ambitions into government policy and legally binding things. What I'd want more of is I'd, I'd love to have a more joined up energy plan, which looks at how we create all the energy we're going to need. Hinkley Point is, is in our area. Um, not that it's connected to our network, it's connected to the National Grid Transmission Network. Hinkley Point has been delayed and it's running behind schedule. That needs to be on because we're going to use the energy. And where's the next Hinkley point? Where, where are we next going to put one? What is the long-term government ambition in investing in low-carbon energy sources? What we have seen a huge amount of investment in the UK industry is in the distribution network operators and in innovation. From 2010, the money that we can charge our customers. And as, as a customer, you, you don't see that. The, the DMO charge is embedded into the bill that you pay your electricity supplier. And it's around about £100 a year in, in our area for a domestic customer. Part of that money we have been using for innovation. 
So there was the Innovation Funding Initiative, which turned into the Low Carbon Network Fund, which has now turned into the Network Innovation Allowance and the Strategic Investment Fund, different funding mechanisms which have put millions of pounds into UK research and investment in how we get to net zero. What's interesting because it's money that's come from off-gem our regulator and so essentially money that's come from our customers is that no DNO should benefit over another DNO which means all of the learning has been public and everything that we've learned about how we run a network differently is is public source. As I was saying earlier you, you can You'll be able to look up the spec for how to build a motorway service substation that's as big as one for a small town. But if I go back to 2015, we did Electric Nation, which was a EV project back in the early days of EVs to learn how domestic charges affect our network, which became a precursor to us saying you can have what you want as a domestic customer, just go for it and tell us. All that investment means that when you're looking on the international stage, the UK networks are quite well placed with knowing where the future is as for looking at other networks i think it's a really interesting thing it's difficult to look at america because the topology of american networks is totally different we learned that when with our ownership from american network operators so you need to look at networks that have been built in either the sort of european or the old british way you see it across europe and you see it across countries that used to be part of the empire as being the the countries that are built that way I, i think we're still ahead of most of them i think where we need to go to next isn't in the industry about how do we build networks better because i think we've got that reasonably well licked it's more a case of how do we deal with volumes? How do we deal with customers? And then there's a whole customer service and volume sales thing, which is an area that we need to get into. So one of our members on Renewable Heating Hub, he's a bit of a geek and he, he certainly delves into a lot of the, the electricity. And I think a lot of us are actually paying attention to how much we're paying for our electricity now because the tariffs are just so expensive. The one thing that we've generally found quite confusing is, is just the huge fluctuations that are happening with wholesale prices at what at what's considered as off-peak times uh, at towards the end of October they were monitoring the wholesale prices and it stated that at half past midnight it fell to about 36 pounds per megawatt hour yet just earlier than that uh, in the period from midnight to half past midnight it was 175 pounds per megawatt hour so these are huge jumps at off-peak times this is a time when I think people are trying to crank up their heat pumps, they are maybe charging up their batteries. Why are we seeing such huge fluctuations at these off-peak times? Part of it is, as is, is you said, people are charging up batteries, people are using heat pumps. And um, we, we never really did that sort of time of use charging in the industry. It used to be that you either paid a flat rate 24-7 or maybe you had an economy seven type tariff. So you you did get cheaper electricity through the night. It was very fixed in that if you had an economy seven, it probably clicked over at midnight or 1am. And so you you see those, those fluctuations. I think what becomes more interesting is when customers can start participating in that half hourly market. And when you've suddenly got equipment in your home that is clever enough and flexible enough to avoid peak periods, even if they are only half an hour, as well as it, it going high and, and dropping down, as you say, to sort of 30 pound a megawatt hour, you can find um, during the night or even maybe during the, the, the day when there's lots of renewable energy on the network, 
that you can get a, a half hour of negative pricing. So you can get to a time when you'd be paid to store energy in your battery at home or charge your car at home or run your heat pump to pre-warm your property. That becomes a, a, a dynamic thing. And I think it's a really interesting thing. The great thing is that that price signal is a proxy for electricity network demand. So when the price is low, the network has got space on it. And that, again, plays into the fact that flexibility means we don't need to build a network that's four times as big as the conventional network. At the moment, there's, there's only a few operators or suppliers, sorry, that will offer you a, a real active time of use 24 7 tariff but what i have noticed in the world of ev tariffs and it, it's all changed now with the, the sort of the tariff cap but when, when i was looking when i got my car a couple of years ago there were tariffs that were 1 a.m to 5 a.m say that were really really cheap there were other tariffs that were midnight to seven that were a bit more expensive but still cheaper than the standard domestic rate and also there were tariffs which were every evening from 9 p.m and all day at the weekends and you do you pick and choose the what the one that fits you and the one that fits your lifestyle but i think where i'd love to get to and it means that we and the suppliers need to sort of get api information out there is i'd love to get to a position where if i've got an ev i can plug it in and say to my smart speaker please charge the car and all i do is choose whether i say fast green or cheap and if i've got a heat pump i can say please set the home to 19 degrees if you need to make it greener or make it cheaper or i want it to be 19 degrees very quick crank it up um, and I, I, that all needs to happen if it's going to be properly real time it needs to happen behind the scenes that's where we get the benefits the pricing that, that feels a bit odd if you're just as you say a bit geeky and watching the pricing that pricing that feels a bit odd is going to be the thing which helps keep demand away from peak times. If there's an AI system that's doing that on your home heating system, if you don't care what time your car gets charged in the night, just so long as it's ready at 7 a.m. the next morning, or if you don't care if your heat pump switches off for the odd hour, so long as the temperature in your home doesn't drop below a set limit, if you don't care whether your home storage battery is full empty or half empty, so long as that there are times that you, that you want it to be there and ready. As long as you don't care whether your rooftop PV is feeding your battery or exporting. But when you've got all those other players working together, um, you'll, you'll get more energy and, and the price signals, I think, will be real for people. So with all the changes that we're expecting on the network um, in the foreseeable future, we've got the yeah, big numbers floating around. We've got like 600,000 heat pumps that they want to install on an annual basis. I actually think we spoke to somebody who said it was closer to a million. Maybe a million yeah. um, and so there's all these big numbers floating around. What does that intrinsically mean? How does that translate to, you know, how much power you guys are actually having to kind of gear up for? It translates to more power on the grid. I, th I think that, that's, that's the simple answer is if we decarbonize, people go to electricity as a fuel source, we've got more power. The numbers are really interesting. And I did some work that, that we put into our business plan for the, this next price review, which, which brought it into stark contrast. Uh, you, you've mentioned the 600,000 heat pumps per year by 2030, I think it is. That's the government ambition. And lots of people are, oh, will it be heat pumps? Will it be another heating source? To be honest, I don't really care. But it's 600,000 
things that are moving from gas to electricity in, in the world of heating. And if you look out to 2030 as well, that's the year that the ban comes in for, from petrol and diesel cars. So people will be buying hybrids or they'll be buying full electric. There is easily a million new car registrations a year in the UK. So when you take that and you add the 600,000 heat pumps to it, you get one and a half-ish, to make the math simple, one and a half-ish million things being added to the UK grid. The four licence areas that we operate is around about a third of the UK. So so around about a third of that is 500,000-ish things a year, which again, big number, but it's per year. Does it matter? When you do the sums and go, well, 500,000 a year is 2,000 a day for every working day, suddenly you're in a, oh, (laughs) that's different the way we work at the moment. The place where we need to focus next and, and certainly offering domestic customers the will always say yes approach to EVs and heat pumps. Where we need to get is to a way where we can deal with 2,000 people coming to us at the moment. You were talking about when you had your heat pump installed and it, and it took months because back in those days, every one of those inquiries would go to a real life planner to do a real live network study. We ain't got the capacity to do that 2,000 times over every day. And I don't think we're in the market for employing enough new planning engineers to do that either. So, mm-hmm. so there's, a, there's a whole world of how do I deal with that volume? How do I get into the world of volume mass market such mm-hmm. that 2,000 things a day being added to my network isn't a problem? It's not a problem for the network. It's great because we can forecast that. We can build big cables. But not a problem from, for my customer management systems. Our current systems will creak with those volumes and they're not interactive, they're not web-based. How do we develop that customer interaction tool that works for, quite frankly, volumes we've never seen? The 8 million customers that we serve in our area, some of them will will never interact with us, some of them don't even know who we are, but that's not a problem. The proportion that do interact with us are people that either have a new supply or an upgraded supply, or whose lights go out. Through to 2050, all of those 8 million customers are going to be engaging with us because they'll either have a heat pump or an EV, or both. We need now to look at how we change our customer service options to allow that volume. And it's 2,000 a day, every day, from 2030 onwards through to 2050, is what the future holds for our industry. Well, that's not our industry, that's just the the national grid license areas is sort of three times that much if you look at it for the whole of the UK. But it's volume, 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 which is a, a step change for network operators. I think that maybe previous to this winter, maybe everybody's just been a little bit, you know, kind of power and how it's how it's actually created, where it's stored, how it actually gets to us, as you said, has only really kind of been highlighted to us in you know, dire straits times when we've either been, you know, disconnected, there's been power failures or everything. The rest of the year, we kind of tend to just take it for granted. And, you know, we just go into a room and hit the kettle and expect it to come on. And, you know, so I think it's, it's really interesting. And I think that, um, I think it's one thing that is um, a positive from what we're seeing this huge shift in not only how we're all living in our lifestyles and, you know, the electrification, but also the energy prices going skyrocketing out of control 
control is that people are starting to really pay attention to energy and they're asking a lot more questions and they're becoming a lot more engaged. So um, I'm going to be super interested to see how you navigate that <laughs> and uh, what you put into place uh, to make sure that your relationship with people is maybe a lot more transparent, a lot more accessible and uh, a lot more positive for both sides. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I think we're, we'll be really excited to, to maybe have you back uh, this time next year and see what changes have happened. Oh, it's good. It's been good to talk. <laughs>